It may be invisible to some or ever present to others, but trauma entangles us all. Welcome to Traumatize, brought to you by Network for Victim Recovery of DC. Traumatize is a podcast that creates space and conversations to untangle the societal knots that keep us from addressing trauma after crime. For you, we want this podcast to be an experience, one where you leave understanding how you can be a crossing point to minimize the deeply painful and costly consequences of trauma, no matter who you are. Welcome to Traumatize, where we believe trauma is a common thread of the human connection. I'm Bridget Stumpf, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Lindsay Silverberg. Hi, everybody. We are so excited to launch into our next episode together. During this episode, we will be discussing trauma's intersection in higher education, what happens when professors create trauma-informed classrooms, how does this impact their students, their lives, those students who will eventually intersect with survivors of trauma. Why is this so important and how can we push a culture where we are requiring trauma education in classrooms? Here to dive into this topic with us today is Dr. Mona Mittal. As a clinical researcher, Dr. Mittal is engaged in prevention and intervention research focused on individuals and couples with experiences of interpersonal violence. Her research focuses on mental and sexual and reproductive health of survivors of violence using a trauma-informed lens. She is an associate professor of family science at the University of Maryland School of Public Health, where she teaches classes on family crises, emergencies, and interventions, research methods in family science, psychopathology and diagnosis in the family system, trauma and addictions, and supervised clinical practice of marriage and family therapy. Without further ado, please welcome Dr. Mattel. Can I call you Mona yes, while we have this do. conversation? Not to not honor your important work that you've done, but we get to intersect with each other quite frequently. And it's such a privilege to be able to share our conversations with the broader audience. You're one of our esteemed board members at Network for Victim Recovery of DC. So not only does your work and research and impact you have on individual lives in the classroom really matter, but you're also donating and volunteering your time to really drive important community impact work that organizations like MVRDC do. So thank you first and foremost for that. I'm really excited to talk to you. You know I'm super nerdy and I think about trauma-informed classrooms a lot. I uh, have loved our conversations. I reflect back to the very first one where we had put out this random like survey, uh, uh, you know, and you were like, whoa, this is so cool. What is this community-based organization doing? Thinking about the intersection of survivors and trauma and HIV, access to preventative medication and support. So I'm just very grateful that you had the willingness to reach out and learn more about our work and that I get to be in community with you. So thank you for being here. It's truly my pleasure and honor to be here. Thank you for having me. It's going to be a great conversation. You know, Lindsay mentioned a little bit how you have been in the family science for a few years now as a clinical researcher and are also an associate professor with a specialization really thinking about trauma. So, I mean, you could be running this podcast all by yourself. So we feel so honored um, to have this dialogue with you. Before we jump in, I would love for you to talk a little bit about yourself, Mona. How did you come to intersect in this topic of trauma and how it shows up in your work? What drove you to become a clinical researcher as well as a professor? That's a great question. 
So I grew up in India and, you know, while it's a beautiful country and the culture is amazing, I think human suffering is not very far away from one's eye. And when I was doing my master's program in social work, I interned for a year at a special unit with the police that specifically worked with women and children. And as I worked for that year, you know, of course, saw human suffering very closely, but I also saw human resilience and just how people are so strong and with a little bit of help, they can really rebound and grow tremendously. And I also, though, became aware human suffering, while at an individual level, really felt that I was being exposed to systems of oppression, particularly patriarchy related to the issues that I was dealing with. And so I really felt like what I was doing was not enough. I really became passionate about wanting to learn more. So I knew that I had to learn more about traumatic stress. I wanted to learn about developing interventions, not only at the individual level, but more at you know, other levels of the system, including relational interventions and more community-based interventions. So I think that's how I truly became interested. And clinical research, because you know, as I came to the U.S. to study and pursue my PhD, I enjoyed clinical work tremendously. But for me, I wanted to punctuate at a different level because I felt like it's too slow. The world is hurting too much. I want to do something more. So I decided the best way that I could use my skills was by developing evidence-informed interventions and trying to integrate them back into community-based agencies so that we could provide better care. And a professor sort of aligned with that goal of training the next generation, right? So I am a mental health clinician with a background in couple and family therapy, and I am in a school of public health. And mental health has often been not integrated in the field of public health really well. So this was my opportunity. So I've been at the University of Maryland for eight years to really bring together my own expertise in mental health and trauma into the public health realm and make it a conversation and really figure out how to train both researchers and clinicians that are focused on well-being of individuals, families, and communities. Wow. I love that phrase, punctuate at a different level. That is such a uh, perfect and meaningful phrase about how to impact a wider range of, of folks. Um, yeah, so and part of what makes you perfect as a guest for this episode is not only the wealth of knowledge and expertise that you have in the field of trauma, its intersection specifically, like you said, with public health issues, but also you're a professor who brings this knowledge into the classroom. So can you tell us how does unaddressed trauma impact educational experiences? That's such a powerful question to think about. I think something we don't think about as often as we need to. And you know, while my expertise is in trauma, I, and I bring that lens into my classroom in preparation for this podcast, actually, I decided to look up some literature as well. Oh um, my gosh, I love you so much. <laughs> To emphasize the need for trauma-informed education, because while we've come a long way from where we started, a lot of our trauma-informed understanding of classroom settings is still at a K-12 level. It has not infused as much in higher education. 
So I'm really delighted that we are talking about this today because I think it's a really critical issue to pay attention to. So of course you're doing this podcast and you're not new and sure our listeners are becoming more aware that trauma is extremely common, right? It's much more prevalent than we like to think about. And traumas can include a range of different experiences from interpersonal violence to community violence. We are understanding more and more about historical and racial trauma. We're, through the pandemic, we had a lot of awareness about epidemics, pandemics, illnesses, of course, natural disasters, acute events like accidents, all of these. And this is not an all-encompassing list. There are still sort of traumas that I've not talked about. So in looking at the college population, studies really show that about 52 to 96 percent of college students endorse at least one significant lifetime event of trauma. And in this list, I'm not talking about adverse childhood experiences, right? So if we add that, I'm sure the numbers will increase dramatically. The most common experiences that literature shows uh, for college populations are life-threatening illnesses and sudden traumatic death of a loved one. And in terms of PTSD, now studies are showing that among college students, 5 to 9% of college students currently enrolled meet criteria for PTSD. The numbers are really st staggering, right? So couldn't emphasize more the need for trauma-informed classrooms, trauma-informed education. The negative impacts of trauma that you asked for, I mean, I can't think of one dimension that trauma does not address or, or impact. We have tremendous negative impact on emotional and physical well-being, adjustment problems, behavior problems both inside the classroom and outside the classroom that often gets pathologized, right? Because we don't have an understanding of why are students presenting the way they are. And some things sort of that one must pay attention to are if students are showing up consistently late or missing classes not turning in assignments, having low frustration tolerance, so showing irritability. Outside the classroom, substance use, so alcohol misuse, drug use are often indicators of trauma exposures that are unaddressed. Other risk-taking behaviors, even sexual risk-taking has been really studied as uh, one of the manifestations of unaddressed trauma. And the list goes on. Academic success overall is tremendously impacted from low GPA to students dropping out. And oftentimes the ones that drop out really don't get the care they desperately need. There's lots of disruption in cognitive abilities. So being able to track, concentrate, being able to pay attention to things, poor memory are some of the indicators of unaddressed trauma. Especially during COVID, you know, with online education, withdrawing from that, uh, turning off the videos, not engaging with faculty and other students. And of course, we know that trauma is not an isolated mental health issue in terms of traumatic stress. We know it leads to high comorbidity of other mental health disorders like depression, anxiety. So it's just really hard. And when there is unaddressed trauma, we have to really think about PTSD symptomology. And within that, there are several clusters of symptoms. And so in thinking about that, symptoms such as intrusive symptoms, you know, students can have flashbacks in classes. 
they might disassociate. So look like they might space out. They might be looking outside the classroom. It's often sort of misdiagnosed with ADHD, but oftentimes can be a symptom of unaddressed trauma. You can have avoidance-based symptoms, which are just not wanting to be present. There can be increase in arousal and hyperactivity. So hypervigilance, constantly sort of looking around, not feeling very safe in the classroom, having a startled response. And last cluster that I want to emphasize is changes in mood and cognition, which I sort of touched upon a little bit. So negative view of self, others, or the future. I'm not good enough. Nothing will ever change. I can't trust anybody are some of the thought patterns that might exist. Feeling alienated from other people, again, and feelings of shame, guilt, fear, prevent, again, students from really reaching out and trusting others to get the help. And the last thing that I want to highlight, and maybe we talk about this if we have time, increasingly there is more recognition that academia in itself can really be traumatizing. Apart from sort of the traumas that people come with, it's a system that's based in white supremacy and really amplifies other forms of uh, power and privilege that are based in things like patriarchy. And if we are not sort of very thoughtful, we can reinforce these power structures. So it's really important to pay attention to how academia can reinforce the traumas that people experience and that it's really time to pay attention to how do we deconstruct and decolonize these ways of being and learning. Wow. Mona, what you just said is a lot, right, and heavy. And I think the thing that it's bringing up for me is my father passed away when I was 20, when I was a junior in college. And it's interesting hearing you describe it now. I didn't view it back then as a trauma. I don't think we would have identified it that way. But I engaged in a lot of those behavior, use of coping through alcohol, right, disengagement from from school. Although when I think about what you're saying and when we talk about building resiliency in people, right, I had an incredibly strong social support network who was really there to be able to build me up. And so hearing you say this and hearing you know, just how impactful it can be for students to go through and how many students are experiencing it. It feels so important that we say it and yell it from the rooftops because I didn't get traditional like clinical help after my father died um, for many years after because I didn't think they were going to tell me anything I didn't know. I, I There was shame associated with that, right? That, oh, I'm strong enough. I can make it through this. I don't need to. And so I just thank you for bringing attention to this because I think it really hits home in a way that I hadn't thought about before. Well, thank you for sharing your personal experience. And I'm so glad that you had a strong social support system. That was your safety net. And I think there are lots of students who don't have that. So it's even more critical for us to, when we think about mental health equity, to really know that there are some groups that are much more impacted because of social determinants of health and that exacerbate disparities and that we need to do a better job at the university level. And I know that COVID has really amplified these issues and that universities are stretched too. But I think it's something that we have to figure out how to do a better job. First of all, Mona, I knew you were going to be, you were going to teach me. I knew that this was going to be a conversation where I had a lot of growth and learning. And so I'm already feeling that and getting excited. And also hearing Lindsay share what I know she carries and how that's informed her own resiliency and 
understanding of how do we best show up and help people build resiliency with their own coping strategies. And it's uh, beautiful to sort of see this conversation happen in front of me. A lot of what you said is just coming up personally for me and not only like what did I experience as a student in my life, but honoring and recognizing identities and how those create different access to opportunities as it relates to higher education. I talked about this recently at an event um, where MVRDC's work was recognized. You know, I shared that for me, creating spaces where my students get to bring their full selves into the classroom and really thrive is really important, mostly because I deeply appreciate the opportunity of higher education. I am the first person in my family to get a college education. I'm the only lawyer in my entire extended family. And I come from a community where today, in 2022, the average household income is $35,000. And so you think I was there 20 years ago. Shout out to my classmates, my 29 classmates that I graduated with. So this was 20 years ago that I was coming from this community. What I know now that I didn't realize at the time is like Lindsay's describing, I got these really amazing opportunities to access education, mentors, scholarships, mostly because of my privileges, right? That I happen to be an English-speaking, white, heterosexual woman. I got a lot more opportunities put in front of me, even with those added barriers to accessing higher education, having to figure out how to pay for that, how to navigate that with a lot of, you know, missing kind of tools and resources. And how that showed up for me in the classroom, a lot of time was resentment. Some of my best friends that are listening to this they had a little bit more flexibility and privilege to not have to work during college. And I was serving people at Applebee's. You know, I met some of my best friends there, but, and there's nothing when you've been in the, Lindsay and I talk about this, when you've been in the service industry, it really builds your resiliency to, for people, right? It builds a lot of skills. But I had a lot of resentment when I would, you know, come home late and be exhausted because I would start working on Thursdays and not stop until Sundays pulling double shifts. And I'm really grateful for that now. But if I didn't have those social support networks, people like Eileen, she's like my surrogate mom that really took me under my wing when I was working for her as a, you know, a college student in the communications office at my undergrad, I probably wouldn't have been able to succeed in the way that I was. And I'm really grateful. And I recognize that complexity that you're describing in our identities, our opportunities, and really the power of being able to have safe and accessible education, it changed my life. It changed my family's life. You know, I think about my two little kids now. And so for me, we have a student of mine that's actually here in the room. It's important that I acknowledge Joey. She's one of our interns and has gone through one of my classes. And I've been teaching now a course called Victimology for over a decade. And I just started teaching at GW and, and Joey's one of my, my first uh, students to go through that new instruction. And I had been listening to a podcast about how trauma shows up in the classroom. And it gave me this idea of, you know what? We talk about trauma-informed best practices all the time as giving people choice. And so I said, I'm just going to give them an opportunity to answer questions about their life and to the extent they feel comfortable, right? I didn't want anyone to disclose something to me and not understand my obligations, what I had to do with that. I was very clear about my obligations. But I did want to assess how many of you would identify having a broad trauma experience? What about your parents and what about your peers? Not surprisingly, over 75% of every student in that classroom said, I know someone in my peer structure that has had a trauma exposure. And what it did is it gave me the opportunity to say, how can I best support you in a class where we are going to frequently talk and be in proximity to suffering? What you talked about, Mona. 
And they talked about individual check-ins. They talked about flexibility and how they access the classroom after two years of sustained trauma from being a student in the pandemic. And what I did from that information is anytime somebody missed the class, I contacted them. I said, are you doing okay? Did I do something? Can I do something differently to help you um, be able to show up and access this in a way that you can bring your full self into this experience? And I just got my reviews and like, you know, the, you know, as a teacher, like you, you win some, you lose some, but it was a beautiful thing to see how many people specifically said that my willingness to care about them feeling seen, heard and understood changed their ability to show up in the classroom. It's so beautiful. And I, I want to sort of tap into some of your thoughts on this. But what I frequently think about, I went right from undergrad into law school. I graduated law school a semester early. I'm a chronic overachiever. It's sort of part of my coping, right? And in law school, it was a very different experience for me where it didn't feel like it was meant to be a safe place. Like vulnerability is not allowed in law school, right? That's a weakness. They'll hone in on that. And so for me, having to shift to this idea of how can we acknowledge that our lived experiences and potential connection, how frequent you described we all often do have trauma experiences, how can we actually normalize that so that the people showing up who will be the next generation of professionals are better equipped both to take care of themselves, right, and their own experiences, but to take care of the future survivors that we're going to be intersecting and engaging with. And so I'm talking way more than I should be because you're the important one here, Mona. Tell me, what have you sort of navigated or thought about of how do you create at a collegiate level a trauma-informed classroom? Thank you for sharing so much. It's really powerful. I did not know about your journey and neither did I know about Lindsay's journey. So I love that we are talking. And I think this is what is the first step is talking, right? Is recognizing that each one of us has had life experiences that have shaped us and that have impacted us. And sometimes we may not have fully shown ourselves and who we are, but shown up in different pieces of ourselves. But to be recognized and held during those times, I think is really important instead of being pathologized or being labeled because we have biases for certain groups around, you know, this is part of being so-and-so, right? So not having people really believe in you and just giving up on you is the hardest thing when you are the most vulnerable. So I think really for higher education, the most important thing, you know, and I'm a clinician, so, and yet I feel like my training did not equip me enough to understand about trauma, to really work on trauma. It's something that I've gone over and after my training, got more trainings to really develop the expertise that I have. And so imagine, you know, faculty from many different kinds of disciplines where we are taught to be just study what you do, be the best. There is publishing pressure, publish or perish, do other things. And I think the conversation needs to shift. We really need to acknowledge that, unfortunately, trauma is much more prevalent than we want to recognize and think about. And unfortunately, a lot of trauma happens at home, which is something that I think makes us really anxious to talk about. So in thinking about trauma-informed education, the first thing I think for all of us, particularly faculty, staff, university systems, is to talk about the prevalence of trauma, and then use that knowledge to inform policies and practices that are then infused not only at the classroom level, but 
through programmatic initiatives, department policies, and then, of course, larger university and college policies. SAMHSA has done a great service by putting out some principles for trauma-informed care. I think those really need to be adapted for university settings. So concepts of, you know, safety, what does that really look like? Concepts of looking at culture and historical aspects of people, their current identity, using intersectionality as a framework, empowerment, voice and choice. You know, I think that's what Bridget, you talked about, are some of the principles that I'm highlighting. But there are core six principles that I think one needs to really pay attention to and see how they can be applied to a classroom setting. And I think what you highlighted is one of the most critical things is after we have the awareness and thinking through how we do our relationships with our students, there is nothing else that can replace it or building trust, recognizing them as human beings and not just as a person in their classroom, learning what they are there to learn, right? Being interested in their overall development and who they are as people is critical. And how we communicate that is really important. So I think some of the things that I have done, and of course, it's a journey, right? It's sort of never ending process of learning, revamping, doing things again, something's going well, something's not going well. But I really like to be predictable, you know, so not changing my syllabus without informing students or sending them information out. And I know the pandemic has been hard for academics, including myself. So being predictable at times is not easy, but I think it's a really important thing for students. I think Ensuring that, you know, I am attentive and compassionate. So like you said, reaching out to students when they don't show up. I don't think I've done it every time, but I do track, particularly for my undergraduate classes, because my graduate classes are small. But for my undergraduate classes, with the help of my teaching assistants, you know, we track at least the first month of engagement in a classroom. And we track how people are showing up, but also are they turning in their assignments? And if they're not, then we personalize the email. So we, I write to the student by identifying them with their name and saying, I noticed that you've not been coming to class or I noticed you've missed X, Y, and Z submissions. Is everything okay? Do you want to touch base? I'm thinking about you. I want to help you succeed in this class and as a student. And students have often responded that that was, even if they didn't connect back, it made them feel like somebody cared. And it made them want to do better in the classroom. I think these are just some examples. And I think how we talk to students, instead of being reprimanding, I think expressing our concern in a different way and how we choose our language can be extremely critical in how students feel engaged and want to be seen. You know, that's bringing up for me is Bridget talks about this in trainings a lot is not why is somebody acting a certain way, but what happened to them, right? And I feel like that's the principle that you're talking about and how important that is. And, you know, even when we think about for your undergraduate classes, especially maybe freshman, sophomore, when we think about the red zone, um, right, which for folks out there that don't know what that is, it's the time period at the beginning of a school semester when people are more likely to experience sexual violence. And you think about somebody for that first month who maybe isn't showing up because they've had that experience to have someone reach out. And to your point, maybe they don't respond, but at least they know 
they know that somebody's there and somebody cares about them and wants to see them succeed. I can imagine how impactful that must be. Hard because you don't always know that it's impactful, but impactful nonetheless. And Ooh, Linz, can I jump in yeah. about, I know it's your turn, and so I'm no, interrupting, no, but um, go you know what's coming up for me, and we'll have to find the resource, but there's a researcher that's looked at experiences that uh, younger generations have that help build their impulsive, um, sort of resisting impulsive decision-making things that are healthy decisions in the future. And I got to find the, the book and we'll post it, but I, the takeaway for me was that what people need in their lives to be successful is to feel loved by someone who believes in you and to understand that your future matters. So that person's belief in you sort of um, helps uplift your own belief that your future matters, right? So when you get, for me, it's like an Eileen, when you get a Mona that says, hey, I noticed, Bridget, you're not here, all of a sudden, your idea that your future matters is important because it matters to somebody else. Absolutely. And studies show that all it takes is one caring human being, right? And it could be any one of us. So we should not diminish or minimize our own power in making an impact and a difference. I think that segues so nicely into this next question. So when we're approaching the classroom in a trauma-informed way and teaching trauma-informed skills in education, all of this is pretty new. You know, we we have talked about it to your point about in the um, K through 12 atmosphere, but I would agree. I don't think it's it's made its way completely into higher education yet. So there are professionals out there already in the field who would likely benefit from some form of trauma-informed education. How can we infuse these practices into practitioners that are already out of school? That's a great question. I think, you know, it begins, as I said, with self-awareness and some work, right? So we have to sort of, for people who are interested, there are a lot of organizations that do have some free materials, right? So educating ourselves about traumatic stress, its impact on people and organizations. I mentioned SAMHSA, which is, you know, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. There is ISTSS, which is International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies. There is the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. These offer a lot of free materials, all of these organizations, and I'm just naming a few There are increasingly, because of COVID, actually a lot of free webinars that one can access. And I'm happy to put together a list of a a few resources that I know of, and maybe we can post them with the podcast. So I think one of the first things to do is create sort of more knowledge. And I think the second thing is self-work, right? We've talked about here today about privilege, intersectionality. And I think we really need to understand our own social location. And it's really hard. And for people who are passionate about this and really want to learn how to do this, I think it's time we became comfortable being uncomfortable and really spend some time doing self-reflection of our own pieces of our identity and how they position us in a way both for marginalization, but also for privilege, and to use then our voice, to not be afraid to take a stance, to not be afraid to depathologize. Because oftentimes, as we talked about, when people experience trauma, it lives in shame and fear and guilt within them. And if we can open up and have these languages and humanize people, I think we can make a huge difference. I think that's so true. This is going to be a little dorky. So uh, warning for everyone. So my uh, five-year-old son loves Sonic the Hedgehog. 
And <laughs> there's there's this song. He loves the the music on Sonic. And there's this song where Jim Carrey's like dancing in the movie and it's called Evil Lives in the Dark. And it's an older song. I forget who sings it. But when when you listen to the words, you know what it always makes me think about is exactly what you're saying is when suffering happens, when people have trauma experience, what allows that harm to continue in their lives, their communities, is when we don't address it, when we don't name it and acknowledge it. And so that's a little way for me to shout out to Sonic the Hedgehog. I also want to talk a little bit about Lindsay's question around how do we teach other practitioners who are long outside of education? And Mona, you've been just an incredible resource as we have launched a formal evaluation of what we call our trauma-informed lawyering training. Can you just very briefly, because I know we're running out of time, which I'm very sad about, can you very briefly talk a little bit about why you were so committed to help support that evaluation process and how that can be one model that folks might look to for other sectors to infuse trauma education in those as well. Absolutely. I'm thrilled that you're doing this work. And I have told you, all of you in the organization, that I think this is such cutting edge work that needs to happen to make trauma much more, the language, the experience, the recognition, much more accessible, right? And I think any sort of human service facing profession really needs to understand about traumatic stress. So I'm delighted you're doing this. And I think trainings like these are really needed because they not only make this information easy to understand, because oftentimes, you know, these are written in academic jargon and language, and it's not very easy to consume them. So it makes them more accessible in terms of people being able to learn and talk about these things. But it also makes the knowledge more systematic, right? Because there's a lot of myth around what is trauma, what's not trauma. And oftentimes it gets very confused. So trainings like these, I think, are extremely critical to provide correct and consistent information to really improve public health. And by evaluating these trainings, we really can say whether we're having the kind of impact that we want to have not only in terms of increase of knowledge and, you know, motivation to want to do these things, but self-efficacy. And eventually the longer term goal is that our practices change, right? And the more we have more people doing these for different sectors, the more powerful it'll be. We'll soon not need to talk about these as unique trainings because hopefully this will become the language that people use a lot more in all sectors of life. That's Really what inspired this podcast is we wanted to normalize this connection that so many of us have about trauma that's been, that we've all been conditioned to create distance between because of how, like you said, society has attached shame and blame and a lot of weakness to those experiences. And for us, being able to normalize this in lots of different settings, the education, you know, system, healthcare context, legal systems uh, has been just really beautiful because my My belief is that as that conversation happens and the ripple effect from that knowledge and learning happens, that we are giving people tools to equip them to change attitudes, beliefs, behaviors, like you talked about, so that every survivor of trauma, whether they walk into a hospital, a classroom, a service provider, they are going to have a more dignified and empowered experience. That is why we are sitting in this room. That's beautiful. I couldn't have said that better. 
Oh, well, you said so many cool things. And unfortunately, that time just uh, literally I blinked and, and we're here at the end of our conversation together. So thank you so much for joining us for this Traumatized podcast episode. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Middle. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Traumatize. Please use the hashtag Traumatize, that's T-I-E-S. Be sure you are tagging at NVRDC on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. And be sure to subscribe so that you can rate, review the podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and see you next time for more Untangling. This episode of Traumatize is over, but this podcast is just one of our many resources. NVRDC welcomes all survivors of crime and their supporters. So please visit us at nvrdc.org to learn more about how to access our trauma education and how to partner with us to create survivor-defined justice.